Good morning, Exchange. We are in Revelation chapter 3 today. If uh, you are uh, a guest here this morning, we want to say welcome. Uh, We are in about week five of a seven-part series uh, in the book of Revelation where we're covering uh, the seven letters that Jesus wrote, spoke to the church about 60 years after his ascension. And so those letters, I believe, um, are pertinent today. I believe that they uh, really honestly resonate with probably a lot of the American church, and uh, it's uh, challenging for us as we go through and push on that. I want to um, uh, bring a couple of things to your attention before we get going into the passage this morning. Um, this week, we will send out some sign-ups for a community project that we do on July 4th. Uh, July 4th is uh, really important. Obviously, here in Rollsville, that's like the one thing that they do as a community that like most of the community comes to. And so uh, we typically have a spot where we uh, invite families, children, uh, people to come in and interact with us. And so we've got a team working on that this year. And we're going to need your help for signups, for, uh, to man that booth, to hang out, uh, to introduce yourself, to, um, interact with people. And so, uh, that's going to come out this week. Uh, even if you come out, sign up for maybe an hour. Uh, there's live music, there's food trucks. It's a great time to hang out, uh, as a church. And so typically, right kind of by our tent, there's a lot of chairs. There's fireworks, of course. Uh, it's a lot of great fun. So, uh, look for that this week. And also, if you didn't get to jump on the summer shuffle uh, this uh, month, I would encourage you, there's still time to sign up for the July summer shuffle. And what that is, is you basically sign up uh, and say, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to have dinner with about six or eight other exchange folks. Uh, and so we assign you a, basically a dinner party uh, that hosts communicates with you of what's going to happen, where it's at, uh, the times, and all of that. And so it's a great way to hopefully uh, build relationships, grow new relationships. Uh, I think I said that backwards. Uh, to grow new relationships and build old relationships, right? Maybe. Who knows? All right. So um, that might be how the sermon goes today. We'll see. So I would encourage you to do that as well. Let's read together uh, Revelation chapter 3, uh, 1 through 6. This is the letter to the church of Sardis. So the angel of the church of Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that the name that you are alive and yet you are dead. Be constantly alert and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. And then if you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. But a few people in Sardis have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me and wipe for they are worthy For the one who overcomes will be clothed in the same way in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." 
It's an interesting letter. It brings up a lot of questions. Uh, obviously, when it reads with words that say, and if you do this, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Uh, it made my ears perk up again and caused me to study even harder when I read those words. Jesus speaks to this church. It's one of the only churches that does not have a, a commendation, something that he's thanking them for, something that he's recognizing in a good way. He goes straight to the punch that there are uh, uh, artificial uh, faith uh, people in their midst. I've learned this lesson uh, uh, multiple times, more times than I would like to admit, that artificial is most often, if not, if not ever better, right? Or ever worse. See, I told you, that's the way that's going to go. Um uh, I think there's been times in my life where, you know, you see this very inexpensive item and it looks like the real item and it never is. Uh, recently, I had a friend, I went out with a friend who had just gotten a new uh, drone, you know, it's a, one of the, you know, adult toys, I guess. And so it shoots 4K video. I mean, it goes up like, you know... It, it, it literally has this spot where it goes up and then it tells you, uh, you could be arrested if you go up any further. And it's like, well, we're going to go up further, you know? Uh, and it sees it's this wide open space and he's pushing the limits on the height and how fast it can cover this terrain. And we get the footage back. You look at this screen and it's crystal clear. You get the footage back and it literally looks like a movie. I mean, it's, it's, incredible. And he spent uh, hundreds of dollars on this toy. He calls it a tool. And so I thought to myself that I would maybe do the same thing. Started looking at them. They're very expensive, right? And then I started looking on this site. I don't know if you've heard it yet. Uh, My boys were ordering some things from this site called Timu. Have you heard of this? It's like a Chinese Amazon. You can buy anything on there for uh, a nickel, basically. Um, (laughs) So they were getting these knockoff sunglasses, which, you know, there's no technology in them and all of the things. And, but they have a $20 limit because you have to spend some money. So you have to buy like a hundred things to get this $20 limit, right? And so they really wanted these sunglasses and I'm searching through like, what can I buy? And I see this drone and it looks exactly like my friends and it's only $20. <laughs> So like everything in me is saying, this is a scam. This is not the real thing. And then there's like 5% that says, you know what? It's going to be amazing when I get this thing in the mail and I take it out with his and it's just as good, you know? So I ordered it. (laughs) And it came and I mean, when you got it out of the package, it felt, uh, I have built paper airplanes that felt more sturdy (laughs) than this thing, right? I, I put the batteries in it. None of my kids, they laughed at me. They, ne- they didn't even think it would like lift off. It did. And then it got from about here to the back of the auditorium before it lost signal and crashed into my car, right? <laughs> there's a reason why like there's more cost in these other items, right? I've learned that artificial is never, ever, ever good. Sometimes they look like the real thing. Sometimes like you can... You can paint it and you can make it look like it's going to do something. But when you put it to the test, it fails, it crashes. And I think this is the way that Jesus is pressing on the church of Sardis today. He's saying you you look good on the outside. You have a reputation of life. And yet when, when you are put to the test, 
you crash. Because there's nothing inside that says that your faith is real. You're fake. You're artificial. And you might be able to fool others who look around. You might be able to fool yourself even some days. But I see you and I know that your faith is not worth anything. Notice again how he begins this letter. He says this to the angel of the church of Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive and yet you are dead. So each week the Lord introduces himself with this different uh, aspect of who he is. And often it's in this vein of justice and judgment. And I would I would also argue the same here, but this seven spirits of God is a little bit vague. Uh, The seven spirits cannot be uh, angelic beings of seraphim or cherubim because uh, when you look back in Revelation chapter 1, John says that grace and peace are coming to the churches from these three sources. Him who was and is and is to come, the seven spirits before the throne, and Jesus Christ. So he, in Revelation chapter 1, this is why we look at scripture in context, in Revelation chapter 1, the seven spirits are named with and attributed to grace and peace and mercy, along with Christ and God the Father. So there's this like kind of like this trinity that's being mentioned here, except he's saying seven spirits rather than the Holy Spirit. I believe this is a depiction of the trinity. Only Christ, the Father, and the Spirit brings peace and mercy. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1, he says again that he holds the seven spirits of God. In John 15, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit from the Father. Both passages uh, suggest this submissive role of the Son to the Father and the Spirit to the Son. And again, in Revelation chapter 5, you'll see that the seven spirits are named with seven eyes of the Lamb. They're sent out all over the earth. And the seven eyes, I think, speak of the Spirit, the Lamb's omniscience, and the fact that he's sent all into the earth, speaks of his, of his knowledge of all things. So once we look at the, the, the context of this, uh, we know that Revelation also typically uses the number of seven to sim- uh, symbolize the, the idea of perfection. So I believe what he's saying here is these seven spirits, I believe he's, he's using that in, in a term to represent the Holy Spirit, but also, as we've seen often, Christ looks back to the Old Testament to prophecies, to things that are happening uh, before that the people of Israel would understand. And this, I believe, is pointing back to Isaiah 11, verse 2 and 3. And he says this, the spirit, singular, of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees, nor make dissensions of what he hears. There's seven spirits listed here. In singular form, he says the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Seven spirits of the Spirit. Christ is pointing back to Isaiah chapter 11 when he says the seven spirits, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying is this, I hold the Holy Spirit who holds all those who profess my name. Jesus is saying the Spirit holds you 
When the Spirit holds you, He indwells in you. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your motives. He knows your passions and desires. And I hold the Spirit who holds you. What Jesus is saying is this. There's nothing hidden, nothing hidden from me. I know your hearts. And those who claim the Holy Spirit, I know who the Spirit is in. Jesus is pushing them in this because what He's going to push them uh, to know and understand is that they cannot hide their true heart from him. And he pleads for repentance. Jesus is calling them out in their fake, artificial faith. He says, you have a reputation for this life, this faith, but I know your heart, I know your mind, you're dead inside. Notice again what he says in uh, Verse 1, he says, you have a name that you're alive, yet you are dead. That reminds me of the words that Jesus spoke eye to eye, face to face with the Pharisees, the religious rulers of Jesus' day that were honestly, I think, very sincere in their desire to know God. They believed that if they placed all of these rules around the law, that they would be holy and righteous and they would be set apart from everyone else. And they were doing all of these things out in the open, but Jesus says their hearts are far from him. He speaks these words to them and he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weighted proportions of the law, the provisions of the law. So he was saying this, there was this law that you should tithe uh, give 10% of everything that came into your household. Anything that made you any wealthier, you should tithe that. And then the Pharisees were taking that down to the minutia to where even if they were given a plant of mint or dill, they were taking 10% of that plant away and bringing it into the storehouse. And he's saying, you're, you're doing these minute details of the law and you're neglecting the weight of the law to love others and to love God with everything that you have. He says, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. He says, it's actually a good thing that you would tithe that way. And it's an actually good thing that you would think of your finances, all you've been given in that way. But you've done that and neglected everything else. And you strain out a gnat to swallow a camel, he says. The gnat was the smallest of unclean animals. The camel was the largest. And they were focusing on the minute details of the law rather than the two that Jesus stated before, that we should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we don't have love, we have nothing. I think here's what I would point out, here's what Jesus is pushing on the church of Sardis. When our faith only focuses on what others can see, we will always miss the spirit intimacy with God. When our faith only focuses on what others can see, we will always miss true intimacy with God. Notice he continues in his rebuke to the Pharisees, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the dish so that the outside of it might become clean also. 
Jesus is saying, focus on the inside. Rather, what anybody sees on the outside, neglect that. Put it away for a side. He says, the inside will make the outside clean. But then he says again, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs on the outside. You appear beautiful, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones, uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's pushing to say, what does the inside look like? Several years ago, uh, when Jan and I went to Ethiopia, we were uh, we we went twice for our adoption uh, with Avon, and um, it it was remarkable that there was this main street that went through uh, town that was paved, uh, and it had medians in it and a sidewalk, and then it had about these eight foot walls on each side of that uh, that were beautiful. They were painted. They, they were colorful, all of the things, right? And so for probably the first two days uh, that we went, we stayed at this hotel, we were picked up by this car, and we traveled only on this road uh, that, was, that was really nice, honestly. But there was one, one day uh, that I had to go and do some work at the embassy uh, to figure out passports and all this stuff. And so uh, one morning, instead of going to the main road, I went towards the back uh, of our hotel and walked this way. And once I got behind the walls, it was dirt roads and it was men carrying their own shovel to work barefoot to dig a trench along the side of the roads. And it just, it was it was like walking in a different world once you crossed these walls. And so that day, our, our driver picked us up and I said, can you tell me about these walls? And the, the sigh that he gave, I don't know that I'll ever forget. I mean, he just gave this defeated breath out and he said, two, two years ago, the United Nations met here in Ethiopia. And our government spent like so much money putting up walls to hide how we live. He said they, they could have put that money into the community. They could, have, they could have helped others and instead they just wanted to hide it. And I, I thought at that moment, it's, it's honestly a really good picture of how many Christians live our life. We spend so much energy and time and just focus making sure that the facade of our faith looks really, really good. When you walk one step behind it, it's weak and empty and anemic and frail. And when a storm comes, we see what it's made of. And I wonder what would happen if we focused our attention on actually what it is rather than what we want people to see. Because when we focus our faith on only what others can see, we will always miss intimacy with God. We'll never have it. Our attention is elsewhere. 
And the enemy knows how to grab that. The enemy knows how to take that. It's like a magnet. When we're uh, looking for the approval or even just the affirmation of others, the enemy for somehow, he has this magnet, this, this, gravi- like this gravity towards our minds and our hearts that he always gives us a moving target. Doesn't he? When we compare ourselves to others, when we're looking for the affirmation of others, we might find it in one person, and then that changes. And so we chase something else, and then that changes. And we chase something else, and that changes. We read another blog, and it changes. We read another devotional, and that changes. And it's like we have to constantly move and, and, and try to find this peace that only Christ can offer. The good news is this, is that Christ never changes. He never changes. And so when we seek Christ, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things are added to us. Why? He's, because he's never changing. And when we seek him first, rather than seek the affirmation of others, we find him and we find peace. Daniel read it today. He says, uh, Suzanne read it today, maybe one of the two. Uh, I was praying. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, they say, like, Christ is at the door and he's knocking. Whoever opens it will find him and he's going to eat with us, fellowship with us. I think so many times we build these really beautiful walls to cover up the hurt, the pain, the struggle that's hidden behind them. I think we have to remember that that's why Christ came. That's why Christ came. He came to heal the broken. He didn't come to see a show. Christ is not entertained by our facade. He didn't come so that we could impress him. Show me what you've got. He didn't come so that we could wow him with our spirituality. He knows us. He knows that our righteousness, the best we've got, are like filthy rags. That's, what, that's why he came. And so when we place these facades up, these walls up that are painted beautifully and say, oh, this is really great. This is really, this is, this is what Christianity is. Jesus says, well, that's not why I came. I, I came to take your mess and to make it holy. I came to get your unrighteousness and give you my righteousness. He came to seek and to save the lost, the broken, the pain, the struggle, the tempted, the one in despair. And so Jesus, he speaks these words of rebuke, but also he gives this instruction. He says this in verse two, be constantly alert. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Uh, Chad Walsh uh, wrote an intriguing book uh, entitled Early Christians of the 21st Century. Uh, He provoked some thinking uh, for me. He he wrote this. uh, Millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety uh, with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from the stained glass windows. 
Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quiver, divorced from the intellect, divorced from the will, and demanding little except a lip service to a few harmless platitudes. I suspect Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he or she is able or in danger of seeing it in a perspective and deciding it's true to try to find their way back. It's much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. But I believe Jesus is calling the church at Sardis, possibly the church at Rollsville, to wake up. To wake up. To not settle for a mediocre, mundane, religious experience or relationship with the creator of the universe. I think he's saying that they're in danger of losing their faith altogether. They're becoming so far removed from a legitimate faith that he's asking them to be alert. Understand that the enemy's after you, he says. This is a repetitive warning for us all throughout scripture. Many times. Maybe the, the, the most... Um, Explicit warning comes from Peter, who knows what it's like to be taking out the enemy. And he says this in chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober spirit, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's watching and waiting. I've told this story before, like when, when, when we've gone on this uh, safari years back uh, in Africa, now our, our guide was looking for the pride of lions. And he stopped the Jeep at one point and he says, look, and he sees these, these paw prints that are like, I mean, massive. And they're going in both directions on this road. It's early in the morning and he says, they're hungry. And I said, how do you know? He said, they're pacing back and forth down the road, seeking their meal. I just got this vision of 1 Peter 5 where where the lion is, look, he's literally pacing through the open ways of your life. Through the alleyways of your life, he's pacing looking for an opportunity, an open door. Here's what the word that scripture use, to devour. And so when we concentrate on building these really ornate walls that are just a facade, he does not have to look very hard to find an opportunity to devour. So a couple of things, a few things. Maybe this is you today. I thought, uh, actually, you know, somebody raised a question in our content team meeting, like how do we know when we're asleep? How do we know when we're weak? And I started to go down that way, but honestly, like as I, as I thought about it, I don't think that you have to be convinced of it. I don't think that I have to stand here and convince you 
that your faith is built on a facade. For those of us in the room, by the way, I've been there. I've been there. For those of us in the room who are there, I think you know it even in this moment. It's, it's that feeling that the Spirit is working and alive in your heart right now even that says, that, that's you. First, before the enemy tempts you to despair, which he will, he is already doing currently, I would say this, unless the Holy Spirit is alive in you or trying to awaken something in your heart, you can't even hear him say, you're far from God. When he says those words and your heart turns, that's a good thing. You should stop, breathe that in like Suzanne asked us to this morning. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We should stop, breathe that in and say, thank you, God, that I can at least even hear this. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Don't be despaired by that. Don't let the enemy attack or devour you at that. Actually take that little moment, that breath that Christ is breathing into you right now and saying like, my faith is weak. It is a facade. The Holy Spirit is revealing to that to me. And that means that I can still hear his voice. That's a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing. So hear his voice. Second, when your faith is weak, be alert and know the enemy has a plan. If he has not tried to pounce on you yet, he is right behind you. He's right behind you. Uh, one of the shows that I, that I like to watch is the show Alone. Have you guys seen it? It's a show where uh, they, they take 10 people uh, and they put them on different parts of like this uh, Vancouver Island, uh, like out near, I guess, Canada, Alaska, like all that kind of stuff. Um, and basically, you're your own film crew. You get to take 10 items with you, and um, you don't know if other people tap out or not. And so the last person there wins a ton of money, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you literally live alone. You film yourself, and they say plan to be out there for a year. Uh, so it has the highest concentration. This place has the highest concentration of black bear and uh, mountain lions. And so uh, you're, you're out there, again, alone. And one of my favorite uh, guys on the show, he wore this hat and he glued the fake eyeballs on the back of his hat that he took. Because mountain lions only attack from behind. And so he said, like, if by wearing these eyes, it, like, it confuses them, right? It confuses them. They don't know which way I'm looking. I just loved, honestly, I, like, I loved the intentionality. And whether it works or not, I loved the fact that he was trying. I wonder what it would be like for us to be so careful about the enemy and know without a doubt 
He is waiting to pounce on us. He's lit- Scripture says that he schemes. When's the last time you schemed about something? You wanted to accomplish it. You know it was going to be hard. You went through like this 10-step process. You're like, well, if this happens and this happens and this happens, he schemes. He's making a plan. He's got the grid paper. There's arrows. There's highlighters. He's got a page. There's a file with your name on it. He says, this is my plan to take them out. He wants to devour you. So when our faith is weak... We understand that we can still hear the Holy Spirit. We understand that the enemy is right behind us, ready to pounce. What does that do for us? It's not meant to scare us necessarily. It's meant to put us on guard. We walk differently when we know there's an enemy crouching. We fight differently when we know that there's an enemy around. Second, when our our faith is weak, we hold on to what we know is true. He's going to say this in our next verse, verse three, which we've already, uh, which we're about to read. And then also, when our faith is weak, repent and seek wise counsel and mentors to help you find a genuine faith. These instructions come from Jesus in verse three. He says this, so remember what you've received and heard and keep it. When your faith is weak, hold on to what you know is true. Grasp it. Lock arms with it. Don't move from it. And then he says this, repent. If you're not alert, I'm going to come like a thief. You'll not know the hour I come to you, but you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their garments. That's a... uh, a, an allusion to another Old Testament passage of prophecy, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So he says this, there, there's some in the city that have not given in, that have not forfeited their faith for what's convenient. Jesus says that there are some who look up to those who are walking their faith out well. Uh, they're walking worthy of the gospel. This doesn't mean that they have it all together. They walk with him in white only because he's clothed them in it. They are worthy only because he's made them worthy. Jesus says, said to himself, there's no one good except the Father. So scripture says that our best righteousness is like filthy rags. The ones who are getting it right in Sardis are only getting it right because they're staying close to Jesus and have a clear understanding of the gospel. They're clinging to the gospel. So he says this, the one who overcomes will be clothed in the same way in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will uh, confess his name before the Father and before his angels. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this portion of the passage is difficult. And if we read it alone, we would be tempted to think, well, if Jesus says, if you do this, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Uh, Typically, the way that our logic works is, well, if I don't, this is an if-then statement. If you do this, then I will do this. If you do not do this, then I will not do this. I think uh, this is a lesson in hermeneutics for us, how we look, study, and read the Bible. When there is one passage, one verse that's less clear, we put it in the light of all other scripture that's more clear, right? That's how we read scripture. I would venture to say also that none of us should form full theologies centered around one verse of scripture. That's not how scripture was intended to be read. 
It is really good to memorize singular verses. It's better to memorize passages, context of scripture, right? This is sometimes what gets us in trouble. When we read one verse, we frame this theology around us. Well, if I do this, then Christ will keep my name in the book of life. If I do not do this, then he will blot my name out of it. What's the context? We don't know. We haven't studied it. We just memorized the verse. Let's look at the context. I think... um, there was a, a point where uh, his, history tells us that uh, the curse of Minim was added to the 18 benedictions prayed by the Jews in, in the ancient world. It was an extra biblical thing. It was kind of like a cultural thing in this region, actually. And it reads this, May the Nazarenes and the Midim suddenly perish, and may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled along with the righteous. So this became like this cultural norm. It was a curse against the Nazarenes and the Minim uh, that became this prayer, this benediction, uh, especially in a uh, place where not everyone could was was literate, uh, this became a recited prayer. It became something that was not only formative in their prayers, but also in their life and their spiritual walk. They thought that because they were praying this, that this was possible. They thought that as they were praying this curse, may they be blotted out with others. May they be blotted out by the book of life. And so I believe that Jesus is pushing back on this idea. I believe that in the context that Jesus is pushing back. Now I'm no, listen. Pursue relationship with me. I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life. Listen, we know in light of rest of scripture. This is just one. This is probably one that you've heard of before. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace have you been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not what we do. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in I don't have it on the screen, Uh, Titus 2, verse 3. Paul writes to Titus, and he says, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of deeds we did in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Through the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, renewed in him. It takes this if-then statement away. Right? Like when we read this passage and we come up with an if-then statement, we look at the rest of Scripture and we say, okay, so I've got to perform these works and then I, I prove, like even if I have faith, I have to prove myself worthy in this way. Jesus takes it off the table and he says, no, no, no. Uh, just to be clear, nobody is worthy. I make you worthy. You can't become worthy. Even after I make you worthy, there's nothing you can do to make you make me love you anymore. Jesus says through scripture that while we were dead in our sins, he demonstrated his love towards us. When we literally had nothing, we were dead. 
So how is it that when he makes us alive, then we're expected to prove ourselves in this way? No, when he makes us alive, we're expected to live with him. And he knows we're going to fail. He knows we're going to come short. And he still loves us. Perhaps another part of this promise that Jesus makes to those who overcome, uh, it relates directly uh, to this as well. Jesus promises, I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I think perhaps um, it must be emphasized that it's only a hypothetical reconstruction of the situation of that curse. Those Christians who openly confessed Jesus um, had their names blotted out of the synagogue register, most likely, also. Remember last week, they were having a problem with the Jews, uh, which were claiming uh, this name, and they had this exemption. Uh, This was like in Rome, there was this expectation uh, that you would... um, come along with all of their idol worship, their, their um, idolatry, all of the things, the way that they worship, uh, which would include a lot of sexual immorality, all the things, right? And so there was an exemption for the Jews. Uh, we've talked about this before. There was, a, there was a very difficult relationship with Rome and Israel, the Jewish nation, which is why Pilate was so concerned about putting Jesus to death. Uh, if this was just a Roman citizen, actually he wouldn't have been crucified if he was a Roman citizen. If he hadn't been a Jew, it would have been a lot easier for Pilate. He was concerned about making a revolt and then creating this war. The Jewish people were great in number at this time. And so Rome gave the Jewish nation an exemption. If you were a Jew, then you could do this. Well, the Jewish synagogue was ruled by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who were concerned with the really well-kept walls. And so they would cause these things to happen, and they would literally have this register, a membership, and you would have to do these certain things. And if you would not do them, they would cross your name out of the membership. They would present this list to Rome and say, they're not Jewish. And now you are held to this different standard. So in a way, I think Jesus is combating this. I'm not going to do this to you. I think the reconstruction of this situation would also explain how the church in Sardis could have a reputation of being alive. They're not compromising with Rome by not committing idolatry, sex morality, even though that they're dead. The death in the case, though, was a result from the fact that they were avoiding Roman persecution by simply refusing to confess the name of Christ. It was like they were trying to live in the shadows. Hey, like we don't have to be like crazy. It's as if they wanted to live their Christian life quietly. They wanted to live in secret. Because if they lived in secret, they wouldn't have to be accountable. They wouldn't have to be persecuted. Strangely, Sardis is one of the only churches that a letter is written that does not mention persecution. Do you know why that is? They weren't persecuted. They weren't persecuted. There was nothing to persecute them for. They were safe. 
There's George McLeod says this, the greatest criticism possibly of the church today is that no one wants to persecute it. And it's because there's not very much to persecute it about. When we live in a way that focuses on what others can see, want, hope for, choose, we always miss this intimacy with God. And when we miss this intimacy with God, most likely we get swept in the current of culture. Remember what Jesus said? Don't be surprised when they hate you. They hate me. And so when you live your life for me, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. In Sardis, nobody hated them. They were safe. I would imagine that maybe in Sardis, they might come to a meeting. Maybe they come to a, a Roman forum, a networking meeting, and somebody from the synagogue brings it up and says, hey, I'll see you later today at the synagogue. Maybe somebody from the Roman forum said, whoa, you go to that? I wonder, I wonder if we live our faith boldly and loudly. I would would maybe ask it a different way. Do the people in your circles, and I would define circles as like people you work with, maybe you go to the gym with, uh, you hang out with neighbors, friends, family. Do they know that your faith consists of more than going to church on Sundays? they know that? Or do you assume that because you say I go to church on Sundays, they know everything that the gospel in your life is about? I mean, I wonder, I wonder if, um, how would it feel if, uh, you know, maybe you walk into your spouse's work, they've worked there for years next to the same people in the cubicles. And you walk in, you bring lunch or something. And their coworkers on both sides who've worked with them for five years, six years, seven years go, whoa, you're married? But yeah, I mean, wear a ring. Yeah, everybody wears a ring. I've never, there's no pictures. You've never said anything about them, like, what, what would that do to your heart if you're the spouse that shows up with lunch? You're like, you've worked with these people for seven years and they don't even know that we exist? I just wonder, I just wonder if that's how Christ is begging us, walks into our life. There's a mention of Christ. There's a mention of salvation. There's a mention of the gospel. There's a mention of faith. There's a mention of peace in the midst of a storm. Our coworkers, our friends, our family, our neighbors say, whoa, you believe that stuff? He's like, where have you been? I just wonder if Jesus is pressing you today to step in into and out of the facade and into this intimate relationship with him. 
Here's the good news. Each and every week, Jesus is saying these words, repent. You know what he's saying? We don't use that. Nobody uses that word anymore except for Jesus and me on Sundays. You know what that word is saying? It's saying this, whoa, whoa, guys, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. Turn this way. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. That word repent, it's literally, it's an invitation. It's not just a, like, hey, I'm going to throw this lightning bolt and it's going to be a Hail Mary and if you keep running, it's going to hit you. That's not what it's saying. He's saying, please, stop, turn, come back to me. It's an invitation to a relationship with Jesus. And the table demonstrates that for us. This is what's incredible about the Lord's Supper is that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples who he knew was going to betray him. That night, Peter, Jesus, I'll be with you. I'll die for you. I will go with you to the ends of the world. And Jesus says, no, you won't. Before the rooster crows tonight, today, before the sunrise, three times, you're going to deny me, Peter. Never. We know the story. He denies Jesus three times. He looks him in the eye. Denies him. And yet, before that happens, knowing that happens, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. Not the perfect not the righteous, not the ones who have it all together, the ones who are constantly hearing the words of Jesus. Repent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back to him. That's The table's for us, the broken, the weary, the messed up. And that's why we celebrate this. Jesus gave us this table to remind us that he, he sets a table before us our enemies for us, and he invites us to it. We, we've talked about this before. What would it be like to set a table, a picnic, and those who circle you? Can you imagine a shepherd who beds his sheep down and pours the grain in the place in the wolf's den? Get that picture. He sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Why? Because when he is with us, we have no fear. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. He is not concerned with our enemies. He wants to teach us to look to him. So this table that he has set for us is open to you. Scripture does command us to be careful. That we would not hold on to our sin, that we would choose to live behind the facade and step out for a quick moment to take the bread and the juice and then get back behind it. Scripture says, do not do that. It really... It's, it's making a mockery of what he's done to pay for new life behind the walls. 
And so scripture would warn us. It, it would actually challenge you to say, you know what, if that's you today, if, if you're still clinging to your sin, it's best that you stay put and respond in repentance and reflection. And that's okay. It's okay. We would, we would encourage you to do that. But if you are a Christ follower who constantly is trying to cling to intimacy with God, open-handedly, running from sin, this table's from you. It's for you. And it reminds us of the price that he paid to cleanse us from all sin. So I'm going to uh, pray for us today. I'm going to open the tables. Jesse's going to play for us, and the tables will be ready uh, for you to come and grab your elements to take individually. I would love you to, to take and you and Jesus today. And I would encourage you to pray something like this. Jesus, would you tear my walls down? Would you make me unable to have any kind of facade because of the price that you paid for my life? Would you pray with me? Lord, coming out and living our life from behind the wall can be scary. It's really easy to paint a picture that we want everyone to see while we ignore what you see. But Lord, you proved to us at the table that you know us, you see us, and you still love us. You're the only one who knows truly who we are and this is what you gave us your blood poured out for us your body broken for us so we do this in remembrance of you but we honor you with the way that we respond to it clinging our way from behind the walls Lord, I pray for those who need to just take a minute to pray with others today. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to just walk back to our trusted partners in the back. To just receive prayer. Maybe there's hurt and pain on the other side of the wall that they're afraid of. Maybe there's confession that they're running from. Maybe there's reconciliation that they know they'll have to come to. Lord, who knows what, what the fearful thing on the other side of the wall is, Lord, but I pray that they would have the courage to ask you for help. Lord, we thank you that you paid for our life with your life. And through that, through your death, we have new life. So Jesus, we reflect on that now and we respond to that now. That we open the table and we say thank you.